Welcome back to Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy. I am Miriam, the Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at Yale Law School. I can't believe we have made it to our question and answer episode. It has been truly a pleasure working with you on this project, Christy. I feel the exact same way. And I'm Christy, by the way, the Dean of Admissions at Harvard Law School. Miriam, I am going to miss doing this. We've both been waiting for this episode from the very beginning, and it's finally here. That's right. I'm mostly going to miss our gossip sessions before we start recording. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to keep those up. We can still do that. All right. So now we are going to turn to answering our listeners' questions. We are really excited to have the chance to tell you what you want to know. And we really appreciate all of you who have taken the time to listen, and especially all of those of you who sent in questions. But before we get to your questions, it wouldn't be an episode of Navigating Law School Admissions if we didn't start with a game. So let's do a really quick one. I'm sure everyone's familiar with the classic, take a drink when you hear. Both Miriam and I are drinking seltzer this afternoon, to be clear. But I thought it would be fun for both of us to run through those questions that make us want to take a drink of seltzer or something else. Exactly. Yes. I'm drinking watermelon and she's drinking peach pear. (laughs) I'm sure every admissions officer is familiar with these. Those questions that make you just cry a little bit inside. Or groan and mutter to yourself. Uh, We've all been there. All right. I'm excited to start with this one. So this one is very specific to the cycle and I'm not totally sure where it's coming from, although I have my suspicions. I keep getting asked whether we're going to be releasing admissions decisions early because quote, we aren't so busy traveling, end quote. What I actually say is, no, we'll be on the same timeline as last year, which was sped up from prior years because our process is a rigorous one involving multiple stages of review and our entire faculty. What I'm thinking inside my head is that my calendar is filled with about eight to 10 hours of meetings every day. I'm homeschooling three children from my attic, and I'm basically spending every waking minute from October through March reading files. So no, even if I wanted to, there is absolutely no way I could expedite things further than I already have. Absolutely co-sign that. And more generally, there's not a good reason to rush at the start. An admissions committee wants to see how the pool develops and a relatively small percentage of applications come in during these first few months. And, and for Harvard Law School, we actually specifically announced that we're waiting until January to admit this year. You can find that announcement on our blog along with our admit dates. Okay. I'm going to take a shot at this game. All right. All right. A little cheesy there. (laughs) Pun very much intended, obviously. So I will put myself on record as an admissions person who absolutely cannot stand the question, would you describe your student body as more competitive or collegial? If I quit my job someday, it will be due to the number of times I've been asked this question. You really hate it. Yes. If you have witnessed me at a law fair or virtual session when someone asks this question, you may have noticed my face start to twitch because I watch myself on Zoom now. I see it happen. <laughs> Perhaps All you I see are my grace. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you heard me even stifle a sigh of ex- exasperation. So partly I just don't like this question because I think it sets up a false binary. You're going to find law students at every school. That's right. Every school who you experience as competitive. You are going to find law students at every school who you experience as collegial and many students who are both competitive and collegial. Anyone who tells you differently is oversimplifying the world, the profession, and probably trying to sell you something. So that's part one of my grievance. Part oh, wow. two. It's a multi-part this grievance. Is... <laughs> I love another a multi- thing. <laughs> I love a multi-part grievance. <laughs> so 
the other thing is, this is just not an original question. People always phrase it the exact same way with the exact two adjectives. It's tiresome. Plus, just find another way to ask this question. I beg you, here's some suggestions. How do students collaborate with one another at your school? Where would a student go if they wanted to work through concepts in class? Even just, how would you describe the student body? But the A, B, competitive collegial, I'm over it. All right. I'm going to give you another question that I hate. I really, really, really hate it when people press me to compare Yale Law School to other schools. At the end of the day, I went to one law school and I worked at a second one. Those are really the only two that I know in depth. I try to really focus my conversations on Yale and the positive things that I can say about our community. I just never want to get dragged into dragging other schools. It feels terrible. And when an applicant or admit really pushes me to talk down other schools, I really try hard not to. And when I get sucked into it, I always regret it later. Yeah, this even the less aggressive, what makes your school stand out from other schools is, is one of those ones I'm tired of hearing. Okay, a final one from me. We receive a lot of emails, huge volumes of emails, and every day we receive emails from people asking whether their application is complete. And every time our team sighs. If you read our application received email, we state that it takes up to 10 business days to complete your application. There are actual humans working on your file, making sure everything comes through in your CAS report, uploading your resume in the resume tab on our reading software. Please just be patient. It's not a good look to send emails unnecessarily. Totally agree on that one. All right, let's turn now to our first question from a listener. Unsurprisingly, we got a lot of questions this year related to COVID-19. Here's one that we received from a number of listeners. Hello, Dean Ingrid and Dean Jobson. My name is Natalie. Thank you so much for creating this podcast. My question is, will the admissions process for 2021 differ from other years because of deferments from COVID and because of COVID? Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for your great question, Natalie. I hope this will be a reassuring answer. I speak for both of us when I say that we don't anticipate any specific changes to the admissions process this year because of COVID. Specifically with respect to deferrals, at YLS, we always have a significant number of students who choose to defer, which can range quite a bit from year to year. What I can say is that the number of incoming deferrals for this year's class is no higher than it was for last year, pre-COVID-19. Of course, COVID has already impacted the way that we approach recruiting and will almost certainly impact our ability to have admitted students visit campus in the spring. But I'm confident that even if visits are still prohibited, we will find some amazing ways to introduce our admitted students to our communities, just as we did last spring. Finally, I just want to note that if this past year has taught me anything, it's that the only thing that's certain is uncertainty. None of us can predict the future. My giant crystal ball has cracks in it. And certainly things like applicant volume and the quality of the applicant pool matter a lot. But at the end of the day, the only thing you can control is your own application and the strength of it. And that's really what I would advise you to focus on as much as possible. And on the concept of the unknown for all we know, a really large number of admitted students could request deferrals in spring 2021, which may increase admit rates for next fall. As Miriam says, it's just really hard to say at this point. Okay, continuing in this theme, I want to briefly answer a question from Dana about how we will f view students who took gap years or gap semesters due to, the, due to the pandemic. Dana, we totally get it. The pandemic has thrown lots of our plans up in the air. If you decided to take a gap year or a gap semester, I would advise that you try to find a way to do something with your time 
Whether that's work, an internship, learning a language, volunteering, it really doesn't matter. Something meaningful to you. But it's definitely better to have something on your resume whether, rather than empty space. Whatever you enjoy or allows you to earn some money or both. And on a closely related note, there's a question from Hannah about whether applicants need to address resume gaps due to the pandemic in an addendum or elsewhere in their application. That's a great question, Hannah. Um, first and most importantly, again, we absolutely understand that the job market is terrible and many people have been negatively impacted by the pandemic. If the employment gap is significant, I think it's fine to include a very brief addendum, no more than two, three sentences, stating that you're currently unemployed for reasons related to COVID-19. And for Yale Law School specifically, I think an even better spot than an addendum for that information is in our post-college activity section. We ask you to set out there what you've been doing since graduating from college. And if those plans have been negatively impacted by COVID, that's a great place to state it. I totally agree with Christy, though, that two to three sentences max is an appropriate length. All right, here's another COVID-related question that we got from multiple listeners, including Noah and Maruk. Let's tee it up. Hi, Miriam and Christy. My name is Leah, and I'm currently a fourth-year political science major at UCLA. I've noticed that as I've begun to determine which law schools would be a good fit for me, I found myself really wishing that I could get to know the schools and the students that go there a little bit better. I had been planning to visit at least a few of the schools that I was most interested in to get a feel for the campus, but now that we're all trying to quarantine as best as possible, that obviously is impossible. So essentially my question is, what are some tips that you might have for students to get to know schools better in the COVID era or simply when they can't travel to visit the schools? Thank you so much again. That is a really excellent question and one we're struggling with too as we plan ahead for the possibility of another year without campus visits. The truth is that there really isn't a perfect substitute for visiting a school and immersing yourself in the feel of it for a few days. But I think that what really makes those visits so special is the chance to get to meet lots of different people who are members of the school's community and to see them in different settings. So I think that's what you should still strive to do. All of us will have lots of events that will allow you to meet with us in different ways. And that will be the case tenfold for our admitted students. Places matter, but culture matters a lot. And that is driven by the people who are members of the community. So try to talk to as many different people as possible who know the schools that you're considering. I've spent many an hour on the Harvard Law School campus and some time on the Yale Law School campus as well. So I'll say it, our buildings are beautiful and it can make your heart skip a beat to see the Langdell Reading Room at Harvard or the stained glass windows at Yale, but you're not there for the buildings. You're there for the community. And if we've learned anything the past few months, it's that our communities are more than the buildings themselves. And the admissions teams at every school will work hard to cook up some fun things for you this year, we promise. Okay. Since we were talking about how to research law schools, let's answer this question from David, which is about how to research the legal profession. What can undergraduates do to better understand the career realities of the different sectors of law? I love this question. I think it is so important for prospective law students to be thoughtful and informed about the profession that they're entering. So thank you so much, David, uh, for sending that to us. Law school is such a huge investment of time and money, and it's really important to know what you're getting yourself into. I think the hard thing here is that some applicants come from backgrounds and have connections that allow them to know lawyers or have easy access to many lawyers already. And that makes this process, frankly, a lot easier. 
Other applicants are the first in their family to attend college or professional school and simply don't have that kind of easy access. But there are definitely ways to connect with practicing lawyers, even if you don't have any in your personal or familiar network. And I think that's one of the best ways to learn more about the real world of legal practice. You can seek out what are called informational interviews, basically short meetings, phone calls, coffee if we're in an in-person world, where what you're asking for isn't a job, but just information about someone's career. The best people to approach are people you have some kind of connection to, a shared undergraduate school, a, a hometown. Send a short, polite email asking for 15 to 20 minutes of their time to learn a little bit about their career. If you email four to five people, you are bound to get at least a few positive responses most people love to talk about themselves, me included. Yep, same here. I've definitely been on the sending and receiving end of these and with great success in both cases. And if you have a good career services office at your school, you can ask them to help you con connect to some alums, or you can attend career panels that they set up or that the pre-law society, if there is one, hosts. Or another great resource can be a local bar association or even a regional or affinity-based bar association as well. Some of them may have events that are specifically geared towards students considering a career in the law. All right. Next category of questions. We received quite a few questions on the admissions process, of course, and I have to confess, I always love answering these questions. This is what I always wondered before going into admissions. How does it work exactly? Yes, yeah, same here. That was the best part about being on our, our side of the job is now we get to know all the secrets in the inside of the black box and share it with you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. And we're going to make sure we answer these questions for Harvard and for Yale separately because different admissions offices have very different practices. And what we do is probably uh, specific to our schools and not to any others. And sometimes even the same office might have different processes under different leadership. Um, and on that note, seems like a perfect transition to a question from INSEA. Hi, Miriam and Christy. So my question to both of you is, can you think of any major differences between both of your schools in terms of criteria for admitting applicants? Thank you. Thanks, Cynthia. I think on a general level, both Harvard and Yale are looking for academic potential, professional promise, uh, ability to contribute to the community, and ability to engage well with others. But there are definitely some differences in regards to the process. At YLS specifically, we have a two-step review process. The first step is a review by me or someone else on my admissions team. And we read the file cover to cover, and we make an initial assessment. After that review, one of three things can happen. You can stop there and have no further review. And that's a about 75 to 80% of applicants. Or in a very small handful of cases, we're talking one to 2% of the total applicant pool. The application is so stellar and amazing that it goes straight to the chair of the admissions committee for expedited admission. About 20 to 25% of applications go off to three faculty members. If you make it to that point, your file is read by those three faculty members independently. They don't know who the other two are. And I get asked this a lot. We don't try to match applicants with faculty members based on interests or anything else. It is all dependent on scheduling and availability. The faculty are kept on a strict curve and they score files two, three, or four. The highest scores totaled are admitted, the lowest scores are rejected, and most often those in the middle are waitlisted. And Harvard has a very different process than Yale, um, although probably similar in spirit in some respects. You can read it on our website. One thing I'll just highlight is that after multiple rounds of reading and review, we conduct 15 to 20 minute interviews of candidates we're considering for admission. Importantly, those interviews are and have always been on Zoom. It's a really important part of our selection process and an opportunity to 
to get to know you and have a conversation before making a decision on your candidacy. So let's dig into our next process question from Chanel. How much time on average do you spend on an applicant's file and making a decision? Such a good question. (laughs) Such a good question. So Chanel, I actually sat down with a uh, legal pad and a pencil to try to calculate it. Um, So with the caveat that, of course, it varies from um, file to file, here's, here's what I came up with. So... For me, it takes about 10 minutes to read a file as a first reader. I've been reading files for years. I'm very practiced. When I started, I was closer to 30 at periods of time um, and kind of worked my way down. And now I can really understand a file in about 10 minutes. When I'm a second reader, it takes me a little less than 10 minutes because I am relying on notes put together by the first reader um, as well as the file itself. And and when you're the second reader, you assess the file, but you do not necessarily take us, you, do, you don't have to summarize in notes. So it takes me a little less than 10 minutes. And then from there, it is the wild west. The files go to various committee-based reviews for interview invites and for admit, deny, and waitlist decisions. By the time someone is admitted, the entire committee has read their file. So call it about an hour of file reading for that person, probably another 30 minutes or so of uh, person power if you think about all the discussions that went into that interview invite, and not to mention about 20 minutes of the interview itself, 15 minutes to review the file to prepare for that interview, some amount of time with the faculty committee, and then the committee deliberation itself. Some of the people on our waitlist probably have had the most hours spent on their application because we've deliberated on their candidacy for so long and so many times. It's really odd, actually. By the end of the summer, you know those files like the back of your hand. Um, Ultimately, I estimate about three hours of admissions officer time on a file that's admitted quickly, four hours for someone who's in the committee for multiple rounds, and five hours or more for someone who's on the waitlist for a considerable period of time. Miriam, how does that compare? All right. Well, I was less rigorous than you, but I'm going to do my best. So on a first read for me, it varies a lot depending on how smooth and streamlined the application is. Often the strongest files and the weakest files are the quickest because all of the data is lining up in a single direction and you spend less time sort of balancing in your mind. I'd say I average eight to 15 minutes is a pretty reasonable range on a first read. Uh, We then have an internal process with my admissions team uh, where we bring our most Uh, difficult files. I call them cuspy for files on the cusp to a group meeting every week. Uh, And we can spend anywhere from just five minutes uh, discussing those files to to upwards of 30, uh, really talking them through, talking through all of the pros and cons and coming to sort of a group consensus. It's a way to keep everyone on my team calibrated and also to make sure we're really discussing the difficult files. Usually those are the ones who are on the verge of going to faculty review or not. Um, And those files that go to faculty review get significant and very time-intensive scrutiny from three faculty members. Uh, I know that they agonize over those decisions uh, and spend a huge amount of time reading through their files. And I agree with Christy. Once we're at the waitlist stage, applicants start to feel like old friends at that point. And then it's so lovely when they apply to, if they don't, if they're not admitted and then they apply to transfer the next year, you're like, oh my gosh, you're I know you. <laughs> or, or even with reapplicants. I'm like, oh, I love reapplicants. I love it too. It's, it's like, a, it's like two thirds of the time because it, 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 it's amazing how you remember from oh, your yeah. previous review. You're like, I got this one. I remember this person. It's, it's nice to see them and to see the differences in the application. All right. So next process question from Ilse. What do admissions officers do first when reviewing an application? Seeing the number and then reading the personal statement, how does it work? All right. So this is a question where you might get different answers, not only from school to school and officer to officer, even within the same office, people might do it differently. And I have 
people on my team who do it differently depending on what type of review it is. First review, second review um, for, for a team meeting or just sort of on their own. And you might even get a different answer from the same admissions officer depending on the time of day and the way their day is going. <laughs> that's exact. That's very, very true. Um, I, I will say, I suspect that at some schools they have very regimented procedures for this. But uh, for at, our, at YLS, we let everyone work through their own practice based on their preferences. Same at Harvard. We each have our own approach within our office. I'll speak for myself. I like to start with the resume. I think of it as a roadmap to your application. Some days I read in this order, resume, transcript, LORs, excuse me, letters of recommendation, application form, personal statement, and then if it's submitted, optional statement and any addenda or additional materials. Other days I follow this order, resume, personal statement, optional statement, transcript, addenda, app form, letters of rec. It can depend on the application too. So for example, if I have a significant question as I review the transcript and I see that the applicant submitted an addendum, I jump right there to see if that addendum will answer the question before I return back to reviewing the transcript. All right. So for me, I usually read the application form itself just to get the basic biographical information. Then I read our activity section, which really serves as a roadmap for me. Uh, much like the resume, it seems like serves that purpose for Christy. Sometimes I do have to jump around. So we do like to see what people did, for example, during the summers of college and between um, college and uh, applying if there's a gap. And when people don't answer those questions properly, and it makes me absolutely crazy when they don't and they don't fill it in completely, I then have to jump to the resume or sometimes jump to the transcript to fill in those gaps. So that's one reason why I'm so... Uh, so obsessed with people following instructions. So after I, I read the activity section, I usually read the 250-word essay, the personal statement, then the addenda, uh, which can include uh, an optional diversity statement, and then the resume. Then I go look at the CAS report, uh, which includes your transcript and your LSAT score. I try not to read those until after I have a better sense of the applicant. Uh, and then I look at the letters of recommendation last. Uh, obviously, that's just what I usually do. It can vary a little bit from day to day. You know what I didn't mention at all was the LSAT writing sample. I have to say, I read the LSAT writing sample so much more carefully now that it's, it's typed. typed. Oh my gosh. Now that it's typed, I pay much more attention to it. I found reading the handwriting to be very challenging. Very arduous. Um, I often read that after I read the personal statement to more compare. to get a sense of the writing. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. And if I have concerns about whether it has been heavily edited by others, uh, that's often when I'll go to the writing sample just to make sure that it really is in someone's, uh, someone's own voice. Next up, a great question from John. You both mentioned good writing as a boost. What about a personal statement most demonstrates good writing ability? And do you see humor used in the best or your favorite statements? This is a Awesome question, John. So the best writing starts with a good story or a good thesis. Without that, even the strongest writing style can feel cheap, words in search of a purpose. So once you've chosen a strong topic, good writing is crisp, clear, concise, with a nice flow. Good writing also has a thoughtful and intentional structure. The overall theme or thesis carries through the essay. Each paragraph has a specific purpose. There's a sense of movement. The essay doesn't feel stagnant or stuck for too long in a single moment or anecdote or point. The best writing also has a certain sophistication to it. This doesn't mean that the writer uses big words necessarily, but that the ideas, the structure, the themes, the tone all feel pitched at a high level. And good writing is not overdone. It doesn't use quotes 
or extended metaphors or rely on any cutesy stuff to get the point across. It stands on the strength of its own narrative coherence and the purpose behind its words. Totally cosign everything Christy said. All right. I want to specifically touch on the point about humor. I would say that generally that's not a good idea. It is a high risk approach that can very occasionally work out well, but more often falls flat. You've probably heard the phrase high risk, high reward. I would say this is high risk, little to no reward potentially. I agree with that. I think it falls often into that category of cutesy stuff Yeah, that Christy referenced where just probably better to stick with something a little more basic feeling maybe, but probably more effective in the long run. On to test scores. We received quite a few questions on test scores. I'm shocked. (laughs) So first, a timing question from Tashida. Would you clarify whether the January LSAT will be considered as late during this application cycle, given that LSAC canceled tests that were supposed to be held earlier this year? Miriam, I don't know about you, but I've noticed that applicants are very focused on what counts as early and late in the application cycle. So Toshida, if you're feeling that way, it's not just you. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that too. And I, I, what I always say is that there really isn't an early uh, and a late, certainly not at Yale Law School. For us, there is literally no advantage at all to applying earlier in the admission cycle. Because of the way we structure our faculty file review, and that's because of the strict curve that our faculty is on, we don't have a, an advantage to applying early. What's is an advantage is applying when your application is complete. We will not hold your application waiting for additional materials. That includes a later test score. We'll go ahead and review it, even if you tell us that you're retaking the LSAT. I think mostly it's just stressful to hear that others are receiving admit calls when you haven't submitted your application or taken the LSAT yet. That's one of the reasons why my team is waiting until January to admit applicants. Just press pause for a bit especially given the test cancellations Tushita discusses. But really getting to the core of your question, Tushita, well, you may be applying later in the cycle with that January LSAT score, and then therefore you're almost certainly going to receive your decisions later than some other people. Just keep your focus on putting together the best application package you can. That's what really matters. And, you know, we applaud you for taking the time you need to prepare and study. Um, as we said on episode two, everyone starts 1L orientation on the same day no matter when they were admitted in the cycle. All right, here's another test score question from Abigail. What really are the admissions prospects for the non-170 scorers on the LSAT? Anything over and above what you said would be helpful. Miriam, the number 170 really looms large for a lot of us, doesn't it? I remember when I took the LSAT, and this was back in 2005, everyone told me to focus on breaking 170. It was burned in my brain. Yeah, I, I think it's really unfortunate because it's not there's not hard cutoffs with the LSAT. There's nothing magical about a 170 score versus a 169, nothing magical about a 169 versus a 168 in terms of our ability to assess academic potential. It's all on a spectrum with no hard cutoffs. Right. You're, you're in the same ballpark. So Abigail, here's what I say. Every year, about a quarter of my class and a quarter of Christie's class is made up of students who score below a 170. They are amazing. That's why we're admitting them. And once they get to our campuses, they are pretty much indistinguishable from the students who scored a 180 or a 179. So I I wouldn't stress about it. You should just do the very best that you can do on the LSAT. And in terms of the selection process, Abigail, at at least for our two schools, it's not like the applicants with a 169 or below get put in a different bucket or read by a different admissions officer, or a different set of the faculty committee. You're just, you're in the mix with everyone else and your score is in the mix with everything else in your application. And just, just one final point. 
LSAT scores are one component of our ability to assess academic strengths. Your transcript, your letters of recommendation, your writing are all other key factors. So don't just get overly fixated on that 170 and up score. It's just one piece of data among many others. All right. So finally, a test score question both of us really loved. This is from Robin. Could you respond to Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history LSAT episodes? How do you evaluate what he calls tortoises and hares in the admissions process? I love this question. I loved those episodes. Malcolm Gladwell is a fellow Canadian, yes. so I have a special <laughs> shout out to him in this. So thank you for giving us the opportunity to discuss this. And I've, I've actually recommended these episodes to applicants before. So this is, a, this is an awesome question. For our listeners who are not familiar, Robin is referring to the first and second episodes of season four of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. The episodes are called Puzzle Rush and the Tortoise and the Hare. There were lots of mentions of Harvard in these episodes, but I am not sure if they were complimentary. Um, I'm just sad that he didn't ask the two of us to come on as guests. Malcolm. Malcolm, we're here. We have microphones and everything. Miriam is Canadian. Invite us. We'll come. All right. So I know Malcolm Gladwell is a runner and perhaps he will appreciate that I listened to these episodes of his podcast on a run when they came out. And I listened to both again, just to answer your question, Robin. So here's what I think he got right. The LSAT has been shown to predict 1L grades. That's it. Not 2L grades, not 3L grades, not talent informing client relationships, not the ability to produce academic scholarship. And that's because 1L grades tend to be assessed based on exams with a lot of time pressure. I remember forming literal beads of sweat during my Civ Pro final. I couldn't have finished it in the time allotted, and that was by design. So here's what I think Malcolm Gladwell got wrong. So at one point in the first episode, he says that the LSAT is, quote, the single most important thing in law school admissions. Nothing else even comes close, end quote. And that's just not accurate as we, as we were just... We still love you, Malcolm. We still love you. <laughs> but it's one data point. It's not everything. Miriam, what's your take? Fellow Canadian, raised in the Canadian education system, by the way, Malcolm Gladwell will, would assume you were the tortoise. No comment on that part, on whether I'm a tortoise or a hare. So this issue of test scores really, really, really resonates with me. My husband, who's also a Yale Law School alum and a fantastic, amazing lawyer. Hey, Pete, shout out to Pete. <laughs> um, we fall onto opposite ends of the tortoise hare spectrum. And that is not due to any uh, lack of ability in, in either one of us. It's just because we have very different strengths and weaknesses. So I know that being speedy on standardized tests is only one of many indicia of academic ability. And I always try to keep that in mind when I'm reviewing test scores. Malcolm, when you come out with your next episodes about law school admissions, you know where to find us. All right. So let's talk a little bit about letters of recommendation. We have a great question from Bella. She asks, no one in my family is an attorney and I don't know any attorneys personally. How do you go about getting recommendations for law school admissions? Do they necessarily have to be from an attorney? Are there internships for undergrads at law firms? Hello, Bella. And thanks for that question. The short answer is that for both of our schools, we prefer academic letters, which generally means from people who've taught you in class in college or grad school, or who know you in another academic context, for example, supervising your thesis or working in a lab. If you have an excellent professional reference from an employer or supervisor, you're welcome to include that as well, but it really isn't necessary. And you definitely don't need a letter from a legal employer. No one is expecting that when they open your application file. 
And I will take on your question about undergrad internships at law firms. Some firms definitely do hire undergrad interns, and it's also fairly common for firms to hire recent graduates, for example, as paralegals for a couple of years in between college and law school. But there is no pressure at all to take on a legal internship in order to be admitted to law school. Only do so if you're really excited and interested in that experience. Miriam, before we get to the rest of the letter questions, there's a related question from NCAM. Do I need to have experience at at least one internship at a law firm to be considered a serious applicant? Definitely, definitely not. And for this answer, I feel pretty confident that I'm reflecting both of our views. So let's go back from our little detour away back to letters of recommendation. So we also received a great question from Emma about figuring out when it's appropriate to include only one rather than two academic letters. She noted that we frequently say a substantial amount of time since graduating is sort of the... Uh, the way that you know when it's okay to submit only one letter rather than two. And she's asking for a little bit of clarification on that, which is very reasonable. Okay. So in general, Emma, for Harvard Law School and for Yale as well, academic letters are always preferred if you can get them. However, we do recognize that some applicants have been out of college for a significant period of time and that it's no longer possible for them to get one or, or two or even any academic letters. And we want them to know that we get it and that's okay too. What counts as substantial or significant in terms of an amount of time can really vary a bit. For people who graduated from huge schools or from very large departments in their major, it may take less time to lose touch with recommenders because the relationships were more attenuated to begin with. Other people may maintain those relationships for a very long time after school. And I want to bring in a question from Courtney, who asks whether a letter from a professor is still valuable even many years out of school. And the answer here is a resounding yes. And just a final point to add to what Christy said before, it can never hurt to ask. You won't always get a yes if you ask a faculty member for a letter a few years out of school, but you may be surprised. It really can't hurt to try and reconnect with an instructor or two. You may be pleasantly surprised. And now another great LOR question from Jim. How would you advise an applicant that has very little interaction with their professors? So first, we do recognize that some students have much more access to professors than others. It can really depend on the size of the school, the major, the department, and a whole host of other factors. So both of us try to take that into account when assessing the letters. That is definitely true. Uh, we do recognize that there's a spectrum of access that students have to faculty, but we still do expect to see academic letters from current students or relatively recent graduates. This is a chance, Jim, if you have a few uh, years left of school, you can really prioritize developing closer relationships with a professor or two. Go to office hours, take multiple classes with the same person, write a paper and seek feedback, things like that. If you're a senior or recent graduate, it can be a little bit trickier. Your best bet is to perhaps educate the professors that you have stayed in touch with about the work that you did in your class and in the time since you've graduated. Send them your resume and your some sample work. Set up a call or a chat online so that you can reconnect. And of course, give them a lot of notice and be as appreciative and respectful as possible throughout. Those little things can make a big difference. So this is a nice transition, I think, to uh, questions related to undergraduate institutions. We received quite a few listener questions about undergrad colleges and universities, and we picked three that came up commonly. So first big question, and this was perfectly encapsulated in a question from Dua, how much does the university you attended for undergrad matter for law school admissions? 
The answer, Jua, and I think that's a great question, is that it does, but I think much less than people think and not in the ways that people generally expect. Exactly. If you attended an institution known for particularly rigorous grading policies, I'm thinking Caltech, military academies and others, then we keep that in mind as we review your transcript. And both of our institutions are really looking to have a variety of undergrad institutions in our classes. So if you attend a college or university that is not yet represented or minimally represented in our class, I view that as a plus. All right. So a number of listeners asked about transferring between different undergrad institutions. Sierra summarized it well. Does transferring to multiple schools for your undergraduate degree reflect poorly on your transcripts for admissions? If so, would an addendum be helpful to explain why a student transferred multiple times? The short answer to this is no, Sierra. You don't need to worry about that. Transferring multiple times doesn't reflect poorly on you or cause us to discount your academic performance in some way. In my experience, transferring often but not always reflects an effort to keep costs down in college. Uh, and I view that as someone who's really trying to make the most that they can with somewhat limited resources. So Miriam, I know from episode six that you are an addendum minimalist. What do you think on the second part of Sierra's question? Um, I think it could be helpful to get an addendum in this circumstance, but only if there's some external event the admissions team wouldn't have known without the addendum. If it's simply that you transferred to find a better fit for academic or personal or geographic or financial reasons, I'm not sure an addendum is necessary. That's, that's what the reader would assume. I definitely agree with you, Christy. I think that an addendum is only necessary if there's some sort of outside the norm reason for transferring. So a related question from Virginia, how will my undergraduate GPA be evaluated if I transferred to another college? Will the admissions offices at Harvard and Yale combine my transcripts as, as an average or evaluate them individually based on the context? Generally, Virginia, it's the latter. Yeah, that's right. We re report a cumulative GPA to the American Bar Association, which is calculated by LSAC. But that's sort of the smallest piece of the puzzle. We are going to be looking very carefully at each of the transcripts from each institution, and we're going to be evaluating them in their own context. We're going to be looking at grading trends over time, um, sort of how challenging each program was on its own terms. So it's, the average is not really the most relevant feature at all. And in one flourish, the arc of your coursework would still be taken into account across institutions and across your academic record and a general upward trend from freshman through senior year would still count as an upward trend across those transcripts. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about the undergraduate degree, starting with a question from Alana. How do admissions offices look at double majors and minors? I pursued two degrees out of curiosity and interest without deep concern for achieving as high of a GPA as I could have received pursuing one. Will this be seen as all over the place in terms of courses or as ambitious? Alana, I think it's wonderful that you pursued your interests while you were in college, and it definitely won't be viewed as all over the place. We are always looking for students who have genuine academic interests, and it sounds like you definitely did. In terms of the GPA, we'll look carefully at your transcript and analyze whether your lower GPA was due in part to a more rigorous course load, and that's definitely a key factor we take into consideration. I totally agree. I've actually been reading uh, applications recently, and I've seen three and even four majors from certain applicants. Wow. And I, yeah. I know. I've, four blew me away. Three is impressive. Four is like, holy cow. Wow. I could never imagine doing that. And we'd love to see applicants who love school and really pursued learning deeply in, in, in those ways. So I think that pursuing those interests is fantastic. I'm glad you did it. Uh, and don't worry too much about how it's going to be impacting admissions. 
Next up is a question from Guan Mai. How do law schools view graduating early? I am planning to graduate in two and a half years for financial reasons. As long as I still have good grades, how positively or negatively would this be viewed? I'm not sure about you, Christy, but I've been seeing quite a lot of applicants who graduated early. It definitely seems like something that's not uncommon at all. We certainly understand that college is becoming ever more expensive and that there can be intense pressure to shorten your degree program and graduate as quickly as possible. I'm also assuming that you're planning to go straight to law school after college, because if you plan to work for a few years, that might change the dynamic significantly. I review applicants who plan to go straight to law school and graduate early the same way I review all applicants. I need to answer two questions in a positive way. Will they be academically successful at YLS and will they be able to contribute to our community in, inside and outside the classroom? If you graduate early, the one tricky thing is that there can be less data available to answer both of those questions, less coursework, fewer extracurricular activities, less time during the summers to work or intern. So there can be more weight placed on all of the data that is present. But that doesn't mean that I view the mere fact that you graduated early negatively. I definitely, definitely don't. And we admit plenty of great people who do graduate early. I've got nothing to add here. You captured everything I'd say. Thanks, Guan Mei, for that question. So let's transition to graduate degrees. All right. Yeah, we definitely received a few questions, including from Morgan and Emma, about graduate degrees. Specifically, they both asked whether it would be it would negatively impact their law school application if they're simultaneously applying to another graduate program and how we view joint degree applications in general. The short answer is that this is not an issue or a problem at all. We have tons of students who have really interdisciplinary interests who are pursuing joint degrees while they're at Yale Law School. Some of them are interested in a really traditional legal career, some are not, and we know that they're going to have tons of different opportunities after graduation to pursue those interests. In terms of the application nitty-gritty, at YLS, you aren't required to even indicate that you're applying for a joint degree as part of your application, but you can certainly write about it if you choose in your personal statement, and many people do. We don't coordinate admission with any other Yale graduate programs either. Christy, how is it similar or different at HLS? So we have an application question that asks if you intend to apply to a joint degree program this year or in the future, and it invites applicants to share a few words about joint degree plans. But similar to Yale, we don't coordinate with any of our joint degree partners during the application process. Usually I'm the one asking admitted students if they've heard back from the Kennedy School at this point in time. I wanted to touch on a couple questions we received related to character and fitness. So I'll start with one that's really general, but important. This is from Sammy. Does having an infraction automatically disqualify an applicant? Sammy, the answer is a definitive no. I would say the the vast, vast majority, well over 90% of the character and fitness addenda we see are completely nothing burgers. They, they're irrelevant to our analysis. So you know, there's there are some which are more serious, uh, rarely disqualifying, but are taken into account as part of our review process. The one thing, though, that's critical is when in doubt, disclose. That's not so much because it's hyper relevant to the admissions process. It's because of what happens later with the bar. If you don't disclose it to the law school and then you end up disclosing it to the bar and there's a discrepancy, that becomes in and of itself a character and fitness issue for the bar. So it's really, really critical that you disclose anything that is even possibly relevant to the character and fitness questions you're asked for that purpose. And Sammy, if you're worried about drinking violations from freshman year of college, let me tell you. Don't be. Don't be. <laughs> All right. So here's another question from a listener. The listener asks, 
I was caught assisting someone in cheating on a test during college, and I'd like to know how this might affect how the admissions office will view my application. Does something like this warrant my application being automatically denied? I have since grown so much and learned from this event. I never plan on repeating, and I plan on fully disclosing this in my application. Any insight would be greatly appreciated. So this is a really good question, and I think you're already a few steps in a really positive direction. So number one, you are already ready to disclose it, which is absolutely the right thing to do. Number two, it seems like there's some time since the event happened, which is great. It gives some temporal distance. And it sounds like you're ready to discuss the ways that you've grown and, and changed since that happened. So no, this is not necessarily disqualifying. We have definitely admitted people who've had similar things on their record before. This is one of those that requires more than a few sentences of explanation. And I think the way that you frame this already, that you accept full responsibility for it, and here are all the ways that you've changed and grown since that event happened are really, really critical. But no, this is not necessarily disqualifying at all. Yeah. Yeah, and good for I can tell even just from this email listener that you are ready to write an effective addendum on this point. Absolutely. Okay, so transitioning to another set of questions. So first, shout out to our friend and colleague, Johan Lee from episode two. Here's a question from Steven. I'm what Johan described as a non-traditional applicant with years of experience in my field. And Steven asks whether he should approach the law school application process any differently than a more, quote, traditional applicant. Hello, Johan, if you're listening. And hello to Matthew and Anconia, too, if you're out there. Thank you again for joining us this season. We really appreciate it. All right. So I think that's a great question, Stephen. Um, the answer in the words of the great Johan Lee is, it depends. <laughs> if it's obvious how your current career connects to the law, you may not need to do anything differently from a more quote unquote traditional applicant. But you want to make sure that you don't leave any big open questions in the reader's mind either. So one possible distinction is whether you're trying to tell a pivot story or an integration story. So if you're totally pivoting from your current career, you might want to briefly explain why that is so. Personal statements, probably the most logical choice for that. Um, prepare to talk about it in an interview if you're applying to schools that interview. If you want to integrate your current career with a legal career, think about whether that integration is obvious. If so, no explanation is needed. If not, tell us how that integration will work. All right, next we have a question from Vince. Hi, this is Vince calling from New York City. And my question for the podcast is, what is your advice for someone who had a mediocre undergraduate academic experience, but who has since made significant positive impact with their professional career? Is admission to Harvard or Yale Law School just a pipe dream for someone considerably below your GPA medians? Or is there a way for someone in my position to overcome their past academic performance? Vince, I love this question. Admissions is absolutely not a pipe dream for you. Both Yale and Harvard are looking for applicants with interesting and diverse backgrounds who are going to come together to create a dynamic classroom environment. Of course, we do have to feel confident that you are academically able to do the work. But that is a threshold question. We aren't looking only for people with the highest numbers possible. We are looking for people who will contribute in all sorts of cool and amazing ways to our student body, our alumni community, and the legal profession at large. At the end of the day, the only guarantee you won't get in is if you don't apply. Yep, Vince, if you don't apply, you won't get in. And if you do apply, you might not get in. 
but you also might get in. Personally, I would take my chances. I almost didn't apply to Harvard Law School. I was living in another city that I loved, and there was an amazing law school less than a mile away from my apartment. My husband was the one who pushed me to press submit, and he made a great point. I'd already written the essays, asked recommenders for letters, and filled out that whole LSAC profile. Why not take the chance? Every day, I'm grateful that he pestered me to at least try, and I hope you do too, Vince. Well, since we're talking about our husbands, my <laughs> husband is also the reason that I applied to Yale Law School. I got completely bogged down in the 250-word essay way back in college and told him, forget about it. I'm not applying to Yale. And Pete just pushed me through it and told me, you got to take your chance. You got to shoot your shot. And I did. And look at where we both ended up. So believe in yourself, a bet on yourself. I think that's a really critical part of this process. All right. And that's our seventh and final episode for Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy. We loved putting this together and we hope that this season is helpful to applicants both now and in the future. And we're so grateful to all of you for your kind messages thanking us for the show. We really thank you for listening and we hope it's been helpful. Dare I say it? See you next year for season two, Christy? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> 2021. 2021. Hard to imagine, but it's coming. All right. Thanks, listeners. Thank you, everyone. This podcast is produced by Ryan McAvoy from the Yale Broadcast Studio.